Welcome to the Filmlinks Podcast. A bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 124, Documentary Dreams. That's right. We're going to be talking about sports like we have been for this entire uh, small series run this year. But uh, in the context of documentary, because, uh, yeah. you know, sports are a real thing, like so many other things we see in movies, um, except like, you know, half of the things we see in movies. <laughs> um, but they, they are very real there. Uh, and there's something that's very easily and very commonly captured on on film. Um, you probably they're, watch they're a sports every week. That's the whole point of sports. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's something to be watched and to be seen. Um, and we're so used to seeing them in the live context, whether in person or on TV. Uh, but, you know, once you have get a movie crew in there, uh, you can explore different stories around it. And some of the things we'll be talking about today are kind of like preservations of live recordings as some are uh, or live events. Some are uh, retellings of stories of people who are in the sports world uh, that are, you know, very much viewed through that lens of sports and a sports career. And some are literally a mix of the two of those. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We have so a we have really a pre- great combination of like just different ways that documentaries come about because they're, they're basically three different ways that you can create a documentary. One is you you know exactly what's going to happen so you can plan for it and you can shoot it almost like a film. Uh, one is you're kind of discovering the story as you go along. And uh, the final one is to, retell something that's already happened and has come to a conclusion. And we're seeing all three of those today. Exactly. It's a pretty good range. Um, But the specific films we'll be talking about are Tokyo Olympiad from 1965, directed by Kon Ichikawa, uh, which won a BAFTA uh, for both the Documentary Award, which is essentially Best Documentary, and the UN Award, which is assigned by a committee uh, with a delegation from the UN, which makes sense because it's the Olympics. Uh, then mm-hmm. Hoop Dreams from 1994, the year we were born, um, directed by one Steve James. And this was nominated for Best Film Editing at the Oscars, which is pretty phenomenal considering its yeah. origin story, which we'll talk about uh, once oh, we get yeah. into uh, something speci- uh, or the specifics of that film. And then finally, Cinna from 2010, which is directed by Asif Kapadia. Um, and won BAFTAs for both both Best Documentary Film and Best Editing, and was nominated for the Best uh, British Film at the BAFTAs. Yeah, absolutely. And Senna is actually available on Netflix right now, so if you're interested, you can go check it out there. All right, well, there's not a ton of setup for these movies because they just sort of are their sport, uh, so let's it's jump sport. right into it. <laughs> yeah, we're starting off with the Olympics, so Jason, set up Tokyo Olympiad. Tokyo Olympiad from 1965. Covering the 1964 Olympics held in Tokyo, Japan, this film covers in detail and beauty the world's best athletes on the biggest shared stage in the world. Okay, Alex, I think one thing that we have to kind of start this this conversation off with is something that we talked about at the very beginning of this season, but we did not actually, we haven't actually covered it. Uh, which is uh, Lenny Riefenstahl's Olympia, which kind of set the bar for Olympic documentaries and Olympic representation. So I think um, I'm not totally clear on like the history of Olympic uh, recordings, but I think that whatever country is hosting kind of gets to choose how they want to 
capture that. And, uh, you know, Lenny Reifenstahl in 1936, when uh, the Olympics were held in Germany, uh, was commissioned by Adolf Hitler to capture the Olympics as a sort of monument to uh, the German strength and power and might, uh, which is actually really satisfying when you see America win so many medals during those. Uh, but yeah, yeah, no, that's, a, that's the big story there. Uh, but you're right. She captured you're, it really well. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you're right. A, a big up until rather recently, when um, uh, you, I mean, basically almost up until like the transition into full digital technology, maybe a little bit with tape technology in the '80s and '90s. Um, but the the essentially democratization of filming the Olympics became something larger as time went on. But earlier on in the 40s, 50s, 60s, it was a very political thing, mm-hmm. um, especially because, you know, the country hosting determined who had access to what. Um, yeah. In, in correspondence with the Olympic uh, Council or the Olympic governing, governing body, I think it's changed names over the years, um, but they've, they essentially have the power to turn it into a big piece of propaganda, um, which was definitely what... Try, they tried to do in Olympia um, and what some people wanted for Tokyo Olympiad um, but that's not how it how Kon Ichikawa envisioned it and that's actually I, I much prefer his vision of it which focuses much more on um, the actual sports themselves uh, the humanity of the event um, yeah. which is kind of like the goal behind the Olympics is tearing down these borders in uh or these divisions we've kind of assigned ourselves in favor of um showing the common humanity and he focuses Mm -hmm. a lot on that beauty um connected between all of these athletes performing and you know occasionally they'll interject with like these human stories but most of it's just watching the incredible things that humans can do shot really really well um in a really cool setting yeah and he does, uh, I, I did watch one interview with the director on uh, Criterion, because it's on the Criterion channel right now, along with um, actually a huge collection of Olympic recordings. Uh, but he talks about Olympia, because it, it came up, because it kind of has to. And this, Tokyo Olympiad is basically the, um, is like right behind Olympia as far as fame of Olympic recordings. So Because he put so much effort into it, but he... He says that, you know, Lenny Reifenstahl was going for a very political message when she was creating that uh, Olympia. And his kind of message that he was trying to put through the whole thing was peace, uh, which as simple as it sounds, obviously is is makes a lot of sense. And once you get into it, you know, you're watching the sport and you're watching all of the countries uh, compete, which, you know, on its face is a pretty um, objective sort of a, a thing. But, you know documentaries as objective as you as you know they kind of seem like they can be they they never are they always have some kind of point of view to one extent or another uh and i think one of the things that uh ichikawa does really well is you know for example just the way that he starts the whole thing he begins it with a history of the modern olympics from the late 1800s through uh i believe um 1965 was the 18th uh, Olympics. And so he goes through, you know, 
where each Olympic was held, you know, what was happening politically, the two Olympic games that were skipped because of World War II, um, the the years that Tokyo was, or that Japan was banned from hosting the Olympics, uh, and then finally to this this one in which they were able to host, obviously. Uh, and then there are also moments throughout when he will zero in on an athlete, which he doesn't do very often, but I do think it's interesting when he does. Like the, uh, uh, he talks about the athlete from Chad, which had just become a nation at that point, which I didn't even realize. That was um, really cool. I actually really enjoyed that portion cool? of this film. That was that was really dope. And and just like the salt, I, I don't really want to say lonely, although it almost feels that way, but like the solitary view of of this character. I mean, he's a real person. Yeah. Within film context, I guess we can yeah. call him a character. He was the one athlete from Chad, just to be clear. And Chad didn't have the money to... Uh, keep him there the whole time so he was only able to be there as long as he was still competing and then he had to go home so he didn't really get to do the festivities he didn't really get to bond with the other ones so there's like a scene of him eating in the cafe by himself uh and uh the narrator is kind of you know explaining his situation but it's what it's one of the only times when we kind of come out of the the grand spectacle of the olympics and 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 kind of take some time to think about the athletes and there, there are some other moments like that, but that one really sticks out. Yeah, no, that's, that's a super nice moment. And a lot of it is, is does essentially break down into these extended sequences that feel very Olympic in nature based on just the way that I'm used to watching the games myself. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you see like, you know, today you wake up and in the morning, it's this long sequence of just, um, I guess track and field. And then at night it's all like swimming uh, yeah. and it essentially focuses in on that and it tries, it captures really quickly the drama of a certain event. Uh, even if that, if the depiction of the event is shorter compared to others, um, like there's some that last a really long time. Like the marathon coverage lasts oh, uh, yeah. a good long while, which kind of makes sense. It's a marathon. It's, yeah. It's uh, kind of the, the biggest deal of the Olympics really, especially, I didn't, especially actually, I don't think I realized that every Olympics ends on the marathon. I didn't I realize that it ended with them. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. It makes sense, though. Um, and mm-hmm. there's that really long opening sequence with the, the torch carrying, which is the most, uh, yeah. I would say, the most inventive portion of it because a lot of it feels uh, a lot. Uh, there's some more stagedness to parts yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not only in the fact that, uh, you know, the, the filmmaker gets to do it, but also the carrying of the of the torch is more inherently theatrical than uh, a lot of the other events at the, at the games. Yeah. And uh, so just to kind of bring back to sort of the way that the coverage was hap- uh, happened, uh, here's a fun tidbit for you, Alex. Um, the first person who was approached to uh, direct this documentary of the Olympics, can you guess who that might've been? Was it somebody famous? It was uh, Kira Kurosawa himself. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. (laughs) And so he was approached to direct, but apparently um, he was a little controlling. He had some very, very specific ideas of how to do this. was a little controlling. (laughs) Yeah, which, uh, you know, when you have to report to a panel and, uh, you know, you, you don't get redos and you have to, you know, able to know what you're doing on a budget that uh, doesn't go over so well so it ended up going to Ichikawa 
but I do I do think that's interesting that it was it was originally to go to Kurosawa, which would have been a very different film. But I think uh, Ichikawa did a great job of covering this. And just, you know, the one thing that that really helps this film and and, you know, any kind of retroactive documentary of the Olympics that you don't get the same experience when you're watching it live or whatever is that you have so much more creative shots and you get the the really cool slow motion um and you get like close-ups of just like these athletes who have toned their bodies into uh such a perfect state for doing whatever their special specialized activity is that uh it it's really amazing and again it it drives home this uh this awe and amazement at what the human body is capable of in its peak form in these people who have dedicated their lives to it. Uh, and one of the things that's a little different than some of the films we're going to look at later is that in this, we're, we're almost focusing more exclusively on the sport. Like I said, we have those moments where we talk about the athletes, but it's really not about, you know, what has the athlete sacrificed to get to this moment? It's about look what the athlete can do in this moment. This yeah. is the best of the best. Yeah. yeah, it's not about it's not about the story of the athlete. It's about the existence of them as example of humanity at peak yeah. performance. Yeah. Um, and and what's what I really enjoy about this? What I really enjoyed about the experience of watching the film was that it felt like a documentary as preservation, which is one of the forms of documentary and one of the basically the earliest forms of documentary um, mm -hmm. is just preserving an event on film. Uh, not one that's meant to be a story necessarily, but one that is just uh, set on film so that you'd have it uh, for the rest of time. And yeah. that's kind of what this is. And there's, there's a lot of well done work in here. And I could see an argument that you could maybe cut some of this stuff so that this wasn't three hours long. Um, but also, like, it's a two-week or two to four-week yeah, event. Yeah, it's a huge it's, event. It's really long. The fact that it's only three hours is pretty impressive. Uh, but the 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 cutaway shots to the audience, to the cheering fans, um, to the workers, like, there's a little. I remember a little shot that sticks in my head. That's of uh, a crew of the like the uh, the I'm sure local uh, Tokyo. Uh, Olympic boards workers who were handing out or selling like pins and there was a uh -huh. lady looking through their pins and I was like yeah these are nice little shots these remind <laughs> us what it's like to to be at or don't really mind this but I guess that's the point is to make you think you were there uh, mm -hmm. but give you the feeling of this moment in time and what it was like it gives you a tone surrounding it it gives you context yeah. um, for the event uh, rather than just preserving the event um, which when you're making essentially what it amounts to a artistic historical document is super important. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that's different about, about this film than the other two films is, you know, the Olympics are, are basically set. They're probably, they're one of the most, uh, orchestrated sports events out there. And so, you know, Ichikawa knows what event is happening when, where it's going to be. You know, he doesn't know the details of what's going to happen or who's going to win or whatever. But, you know, he's able to plan and lead up and be able to be in the right spot at the right time to capture what is going to happen. Um, and so that's one of the things that is a little different than what we're going to see, especially, you know, in Hoop Dreams when it the story is unfolding as it goes. And so you have to kind of be ready to be 
on the spot for when the next event is going to unfold. Uh, but here, you know, the, the planning really helps the outcome because, you know, in this case, you're able to see all the best parts of the Olympics because Ichikawa is prepared to capture those. There's there's not a lot of like running around like frantically, you know, we might miss this. We might miss this. No, they know where everything's well going to happen. Up. Yeah. Yeah. And specifically, the contrast you're talking about, Jonathan, is in reference to the way live sports are shot, which you can see constantly on your TV at home, which are nice wide angles, lots of cameras pointing, yeah. but nothing overly specific, nothing very bold. Everything played very safe, which is a big problem I have with a lot of modern television. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's a way of shooting to ensure uh, to shoot uh, with prioritizing clarity. Uh, mm-hmm. But the way uh, Ichikawa shoots is to prioritize. I don't want to say art. I want to say to prioritize effect. Um, yeah. I, I, what, one of the things that's really unique about the way he shoots is he's not just conveying with his angle uh, that he knows how to shoot. He's trying to do justice what it's like to see in person somebody do something with their body that just seems like it should not be doable. <laughs> Like right. these are incredible physical feats. And I'm sure when you're there in person, like watching it right in front of you, it's nuts to watch somebody do it. That's super yeah. amazing to do somebody to see somebody vault a pole. That's like 10 feet in the air or however high it I is. I was about up in to the bring air. that, that the pole vaulting section up because there's something there's, there's one thing that he's not able to really convey even, uh, you know, with the long run time and with how much coverage he has, but the pole vaulting sticks in my mind because, you know, you're watching them go and, you know, I'm not even completely clear how the pole vaulting scoring works. I think, you know, one person hits a, a, a height and then the next person has to match it. And if they do, they raise it and everyone has to, you know, have to keep matching. And once you don't match it, then you're out of the running. So, um, so it's like an auction. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, really, really difficult. Um, but, there was one moment where he has the commentator at the end and he says, this contest has been going for nine hours. And I was like, holy cow, they've been jumping over this pole for nine hours. Like you can't, you don't really get the full impact of that. That's a lot uh, of jumping. <laughs> That's longer you do. than the marathon. <laughs> I know it's insane. And, uh, well, not that, not the last guy that finished the marathon, which props to him, but I think he finished in like, 14 or 12 hours or something. No, the uh, last guy who finished the marathon. Yeah, yeah the last yeah, guy yeah. who finished. I was about to uh, say, the first guy came in in like two hours or something. I know, which I think, you, you know, I'm always like, oh, yeah, two hours, that's not bad. You know, I could. That's absurd. <laughs> and then I'm like, that's so And then fast. the last guy comes in 14 hours. I was like, oh, yeah, that would that would be me. Definitely. Like, that's like. Oh, my gosh, it's so fast. That's what, 120 minutes and you're running 26 miles. And that guy won it two, three Olympics in a row. Yeah, that was no, crazy. he was he was a boss. It's like a it's still running like a four or five minute mile. Jeez, for two doing hours, like that's 26 nuts. of those. Yeah, that's this. The, the whole movie is just that is nuts. How can you how can you do that? Uh, everything. Um, and there there are some of those sports where they have to kind of explain the rules or they have to explain, you know, like uh, uh, specifically some of the the weightlifting stuff, you know, they have yeah. to show you there are three different moves 
you know, and the amount that you're able to lift between the three moves is your score and all that kind of thing. So um, there's there's a little bit of exposition that goes into this. There's a little bit of just and then there's some stuff that doesn't have to be explained, like gymnastics. We go into the gymnastics section and we have these really beautiful like. Uh, oh, gosh, for lack of a better term, I use the the nerdy um, animation term like onion skinning effect when as she goes across, you see like each frame kind of free frozen uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Uh, so there, there are like moments of really artistic creativity. There are moments of uh, more technical explanation. Um, and it just, it all blends together in this really, really cool experience that uh, is, is uh, quite exciting to watch because that's what it is. It's these people who do really cool things uh, while you sit on your couch and gawk. Yeah, I think this is the first one, too, where uh, I really felt my age watching the Olympics, <laughs> uh, where I was like, oh, gosh, how how does anybody move their body like that? And then you realize most of these people are like our age or younger. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely younger. Also, here's the thing to point out, Jonathan, that I don't think a lot of people realize, because in the modern era, like this is just... It's no longer a thing. Uh, but for a long time, up until like the late 70s, mid 80s, it was like a slow transition period. The Olympics were all amateurs. That was oh. the enforcing rule of the board. Yeah, there's even that point during the marathon where they're telling you like, this guy's an accountant. Like this is just yeah. an accountant. Oh, running. yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. Or this and also just clerk. to clarify, the technical term amateur I think usually just means someone who doesn't do this for money. Exactly. So it, it may means, not mean that not, they're, yeah, you know, that's the difference between good. amateur It just and means they don't do it for money. It's been, it's been extrapolated over the years to mean that if you're an amateur, you you're not as good. Yeah, you don't deserve the money for doing it. it, 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 it the metaphor makes a lot of sense, but the technical definitions of the term are as you said. Right, right, right. But yeah, man. Tokyo Olympiad is is awesome. It's really cool to watch. I mean, I I enjoyed uh, watching Olympia, which is even longer because it's in two parts uh, and there's some really cool like artistic stuff. But, um, you know, Tokyo Olympiad brings it into color. It brings uh, a lot more technical innovation and a lot more uh, just cinema maturity to the table. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I and it really shows. Yeah. Well, a few are Nazis, too. And yeah, there's a little, way less Nazis. Yeah, but, that, that helps a lot. But there's not quite as much satisfaction of watching America beat the pants off of everyone else. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, there are. It is funny at the at beginning when they're showing all the uh, delegations, and there's just like five thousand Americans. Oh yeah, can we point out that like the Americans' costume too, which was cowboy hats. <laughs> They were all in cowboy hats. Yep. What? Actually, I, that's that's a pretty common conception from what I've I've heard. A lot of people, if they don't know anything else about America besides like the colors, they know about Texas. Yeah, I know. Like we're Texans, so like I get it. Like okay, cowboy hats, but uh, is America just like the Wild West all it's, the time to people? It's a slang term too in uh, Sweden or Norway. One of one of the Scandinavian countries that's on the peninsula up there. Um, uses the term Texas to describe like a really <laughs> wild party. So like kids will, oh my gosh, I, and I'm sure it's maybe a little outdated today. This was on an article yeah. I read from like five years ago. Uh, but 
you know, it, uh, you would you'd be like, hey man, that that party last night, it was very Texas, yes. <laughs> so Texas, that party. Oh man. Um, but I do want to bring up the the opening ceremony because uh, I think that's also another instance where. Uh, first of all, the section is very long because he shows nearly every country that walks in, uh, you know, which is a huge part of the Olympics. You know, just watching all the countries come together is what the Olympics is all about. But it also, as a documentary, it captures a really interesting uh, moment in history because, you know, you have uh, East Germany and West Germany, which are two separate countries coming in at the same time. They've come together. Uh, they've even be, been unified, and the, the announcer, you know, brings that up. Uh, you see the countries that have been here for the first time, the countries who have, like, one athlete participating. Uh, you see freaking uh, America come in as this horde. Um, so it's, it's just really interesting to see, you know, the way that that's presented in all these different countries and where they're all at politically at this moment of time, which... You know, 65, obviously, there's never a non-tumultuous moment in history, but not as tumultuous as, like, uh, the 1936 Olympics. And, uh, but it's just, it's so interesting as a snapshot of just world politics and world tensions. And then also just to see that all go out the window once the sport starts. And then it's just sports. Just sports. Just sports. That's what we should. We should be doing this whole thing in sports announcer voice. Oh, that we're gonna we're gonna hurt <laughs> ourselves. That's what's gonna happen. And here comes Tokyo Olympia down the down the stretch. Uh, well, I mean, we have been spending quite a time on Tokyo Olympiad. Do we want to move on to hoop dreams? Yeah, let's move on to hoop dreams. All right, Jason, set it up. Hoop dreams from 1994. William Gates Jr. and Arthur Agee were once two middle schoolers playing basketball on courts near Chicago. This documentary covers their story as they're recruited off of the courts and onto a prestigious high school team, chasing their dreams of one day playing in the NBA. But the road is a turbulent one, full of those who care and those who don't, those that will help the boys and those that only seek to use them. And in the end, Gates and Ag are left to explore the role of basketball in their life and identity. Hoop dreams. Hoop dreams. Hoop, 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 hoop. Hoop dreams. Okay, Alex. So this movie starts off and I had an initial thought and then that initial thought ended up being the complete and unvarnished reality uh, because I had not, I've heard of this documentary for a long time. Mm. I know, I think you've seen it before. Were, were you um, like, this is going to end real badly? No, not that. I just like from a style perspective, it started and I was like, this looks like a TV special. Yes, and then I looked I mean, it up. Yeah, no, that's 100% what? what it is. This movie was supposed to be a 30-minute PBS special about how kids playing in the same, like, inner-city uh, basketball ring, you know, how they kind of, you know, find a school to go to and what their different uh, socioeconomic situations mean for their futures and their, uh, you know, their education and all that kind of thing. And then... This crew got so attached to these two kids that they started following that without any funding for the next three years, they picked several days out of their high school uh, careers to come back and follow up with them. And then the stories kept developing in such an interesting way that they got more funding and they were able to film uh, a long time during their senior year. 
and put together this this thing, this story that became just like this huge exploration of of privilege and uh, aspiration and talent and uh, dedication and like all of these things that you could never have imagined the first day that you step onto, you know, this random uh, basketball court with a bunch of kids from the neighborhood just shooting hoops. Yeah. Yeah. No, it takes a big turn. Um, but yeah, I mean, it points out uh, kind of like this exploitative side of sports. I've seen this movie a couple times. Um, and it, it does. It, I think it hit the second time a lot more because I knew how bad it was going to end. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because, you know, the whole time you're watching this, like these are real people. They have Wikipedia articles about them. You can go mm-hmm. hear what happened to them and where they ended it's up. It's not much happier after the movie ends either. Yeah, it's not like it's not like awful either. It's just that the time they spent on basketball kind of ends up being a bit of a derailment. So the one who really, really likes basketball all the way through. Um, oh, gosh, there's too many names in my head. So we have Arthur A.G. Yeah, Arthur, Arthur. And we have uh, uh, William. William. Uh, yeah. What's his so name? Arthur? Arthur is really into basketball the entire time. He's the one who has to leave school at a certain point because there's this like this weird like we want you on the team, uh, but also you need. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, William is the one who gets really far. Arthur is the one who uh, he has to he, he leaves and goes back to the public school. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, yeah, so leaves. So he kind of gets kicked out. He gets yeah. kicked out. Yeah, because they invited him there for to play basketball and then they took away his scholarship uh, ostensibly for academic performance. But also you brought him there to spend all of his time on basketball. And so he didn't like, do quite as good as you hoped or whatever. You yeah, know, there's a like, lot of implication that is kind of. Yeah. Subtext. There's a lot of very mixed signals that you see be sent to the kids along the way. Mm-hmm. It's, it's. And here's really the thing: it's not, really interesting because the, I mean, the filmmakers are are really treading lines in this movie. To, uh, I think they do they do a pretty good job for the most part because, um, they they try to present a lot of different factors that contribute to, uh, the kind of uh trajectory that each of the kids goes on um without really like coming down hard and fast on you know it's because they're black or it's because they're poor or it's because you know whatever like like there's a tapestry of issues that goes on in each of these kids lives uh and they do a pretty good job of showing a a fairly broad picture of that um yeah which of yeah. course like there's, there's they always spend a limit. so much time with them that it's it's hard to argue that anything in this film is oversimplified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're not like um they're not grinding an axe about any one specific like social issue or something. They're they're trying to show these people as, you know, as humans this and they do like pretty, these people pretty, are complicated. Yeah, they're they're pretty stayed back. There's not a lot of narration um there is some though. And that's one of the things that I want to get to is that like Well, what I was going to say is there's not a lot of narration that specifically editorializes. 
of course yeah, there's a it lot tries of editorializing in terms of like what they show and what they don't show um but most of like the opinions directly stated in the piece come from people on screen and actually very rarely from the two players themselves mostly from people around them mm-hmm. um a lot from the coach actually who i don't like <laughs> i did not like him oh the uh the- i was kind of neutral on him the first time i watched and then the second the time Joseph's I watched, coach? yeah, I was like, oh, yeah. this guy sucks. <laughs> the dude who like, I mean, I I have no perspective on the 90s, but like we're pipes were outdated for the 90s, right? Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, <laughs> this it dude wasn't, always has a pipe sticking out of his mouth. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's really weird. Um, and he didn't strike me as like a great coach either uh, or or like a great either in terms of running a game or teaching. Uh, yeah, I just know. seemed like he screamed a lot. And he then was, every he, every time that anything went wrong, he, he wouldn't take any culpability. He would always blame it on the kids. Yeah. Every single thing he was blamed on the kids. Um, and honestly, I haven't uh, I haven't seen this, so I may not even be able to speak to it, but it it reminded me of um, what I know of Whiplash. Am I wrong in that? As far as like that overdriving uh, coaching. Yeah, no, no, that's true. Yeah, no, you you have a point. It's it's very manipulative. Like there was even that point, like there's there's one point where he's like, William is doing well in a practice and everyone else isn't, I guess, isn't living up to his expectations, even though they're, again, they're high schoolers. Uh, yeah. But he's like, he's yelling at all the kids and going like, I'm right, William. If only everybody here was like William. I'm like, what are you doing to these children? Yeah, that's and that's awful. the other thing is is the the expectation that's put on them. So especially for William, who uh, Man, is you supposed just watch to be the fun, gets sucked out of William's life. Yeah, it's so sad. He um, likes basketball so much at the start of this, and then it just all goes up in flames because he's he's so good, and he's supposed to be the next. Uh, I'm forgetting who Isaiah the Thomas. Uh, Isaiah Thomas. Right, I remember um, his name because he's famous. <laughs> Right. So the actual player who came from this school um, and went on to uh, the NBA and became a really great player and was coached by this coach. And so, you know, it has happened. But now that, you know, it happened with Isaiah Thomas, the coach has this idea that it should be the exact same way with William and not really seeing William as his own person, but just as, you know, if I can make him an Isaiah Thomas too, then I'm the guy who coached two Isaiah Thomases, you know, or whatever. Uh, and they bring that up too with some of the other coaches as they start to get into uh, the recruiting stuff is, you know, ultimately it all comes down to what make what's going to make us look better, what gives us the best chance of winning, um, and not so much what is the the best life decision for this kid. And, and the other thing that goes into all this is where each of the kids end up putting their identities. And I think that evolution is really interesting. Did you kind of pick up on that same vibe? Yeah, no, I I get, I get where you're going because you know, you have Arthur who, uh, at the beginning of the film in the, in the first freshman and sophomore year, he is, you know, he's, he idolizes Isaiah Thomas and he gets to like play with him at the, at the St. Joseph's recruiting school and he calls himself by Isaiah Thomas's nickname, Tuss. And, uh, you know, he's trying to build himself up to be that. And William doesn't want to be an Isaiah Thomas. He wants to be his own player. But he's kind of 
the coach is putting oh, gosh, he's also got his, his dad. pressure on him. Uh, his dad, well, who's Arthur, like the stereotypical sports dad. Uh, William's dad, who was a, who was a player his own. Like it, William's dad was a player in the NBA as well, but not for very long. Uh, and he's oh, the yeah. one. William's who, dad only shows up like one time at the at the car shop. Are you thinking of William's brother? Oh, is that William's brother? Yeah, he had an older brother who was like, if he makes it, I'll have made it. That kind of thing. Ah, uh, I see. My bad. My bad. Yeah. I think I think William's dad shows up like one time, but he's like, you know, William has has very little connection with his father. And so he goes he worked at his car shop for like a summer or something. Um, and then, I mean, once we get to Arthur's dad, that's a whole roller coaster in itself. Um, but, you know, the way that Arthur has put his whole identity into basketball at the very beginning, and he eventually has to learn, you know, how to look out for his family, how to, you know, put more identity in just, you know, not succumbing to the peer pressure and the the various uh, negative influences in his life. And then basketball becomes just kind of a thing that he's able to enjoy and able to grow in naturally. Whereas William has also kind of has his identity in his basketball at the very beginning, but then all the pressure is for him to keep basketball as like, that is him. He is how good he is at basketball. And if, you know, if his basketball starts to suffer, then he loses worth as a person is kind of the implication that is coming from all the people around him. And that is the tragedy of his story because that is what makes him so disillusioned with it because he realizes, you know, if I don't make it to the NBA, I still have to be, you know, worth something to myself. And but I put so much into this basketball that, you know, it's kind of all he has. Yeah, no, it gets you can just see it in his face, too. Yeah, it's he end. just gets railroaded on this path. And there's even there's even like this one aspect that the uh, that is kind of the I guess it isn't kind of it is directly the document documentarians pulling the string um, the strings of the story, but they bring the first recruiter who found the kids oh, yeah. back. <laughs> that was and he's like, a, yeah, and he's a, 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 and you can tell he he definitely won't admit to it, but he also knows what he did was wrong. He knows yeah. that sending these kids the, these kids on this path of people who all just seem to want to use them. Yeah, don't actually like like they all everyone always keeps saying that they have the kids best interest in heart, but none of them seem to actually have the kids best interest in heart. Um, They never they never. Yeah, they never talk to them about like how to keep a a healthy um, self image or like. uh, Yeah, anything talent, any talent person balance. Yeah, they, they only they only do what they need to to get them to perform the way they want them to perform. And and it's even really interesting to watch the initial recruiting process by St. Joseph and then near the very end of the film watch the same recruitment process happen all over again. With and you see just like amplified. Yeah, and you already know how how kind of like slimy it is. And then you mm-hmm. watch these college recruiters and it's real slimy. It's it's real bad. Like they're showing all this stuff off and you already know how they're going to be treated there. 
maybe better, maybe less abusively, but also it's definitely entering into a contract where they just want you to perform for them and you're not getting that much back in return. Like, yeah, you're getting your education paid for, but if you're expected to spend all your time on the court to keep benefiting the program, then are you really mm-hmm. getting that quality of an education? Um, and that sequence of William describing the way that the recruiters were sucking up to him. Um, yeah. Like, I feel yeah. like I've heard that even just in the corporate world, like as far as people trying to get hired for management and stuff, you know, people are or real just nice to you when they want something. Yeah. They take you to the five star hotel and they give you these like nice steak dinners and you get to see all the like really nice stuff. And then, you know, you get there and you're, you're in some crappy dorm somewhere. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then you're just a player and then you've got to prove yourself all over again. But, you know, now they've got you locked in. So here's the here's the other interesting thing, because like I said, Hoop Dreams has more of Hoop Dreams. Hoop Dreams <laughs> has more of a I feel like they I feel like they made that song when the, the movie was like 30 minutes long and then they it got to be three <laughs> oh, hours sure. and they were like, do we have money for a more for like a different song that doesn't sound like it was made for a TV documentary? And everyone was like, nope. Also, that that song just like just cements this movie in the 90s forever. It's Um, it's very late (laughs) 80s, early 90s. It's like it belongs on a Nickelodeon show somewhere. Yeah. Uh, But this this film has the most tangible fingerprint of the filmmakers in it, because first of all, as like an originally a PBS documentary, it has that kind of really dry narration uh, that's that, you know, William, the summer after his first year, decided that he was going to uh, move to the neighborhood where the school was or whatever. Like that didn't happen. But, you know, that type of narration. Um, and so there are those moments that kind of help fill the gaps because, you know, just by virtue of the way that the film came about after the first initial couple of days of shooting, they only had. Without okay, so without any money, after the original thirty-minute PBS segment was shot, the crew goes back and shoots five days in the summer before their freshman year, and then they shoot seven days during their freshman year, and then they get uh, ten days of their sophomore year, and then once they start cutting some of this stuff together, you know, at that point you're starting to get a story and you're starting to see the differences of these kids, and the one kid's already been kicked out, and the other kid is, you know on track to the NBA, it seems like. Uh, And again, this is such an organic process. Like, you know, there's a really good chance that William could have made it to the NBA uh, while Arthur just becomes a really good basketball player, you know, at these uh, junior colleges or whatever. Um, But, I mean, there are a lot of factors that go into that. He gets into Arkansas after the end of the movie and ends up playing two years of college ball but doesn't Mm -hmm. go into the NBA. Right, right. If I but remember the saying, Wikipedia article correctly. As as you're filming, you don't know that. Like like and their sophomore year, you're seeing their talents starting to come come out, but you know, at that point after their sophomore year, they they got more funding. So then uh CPB funded $70,000 and KTCA gave another 60,000. So I mean, there's and they're getting so they're getting a, a bunch of funds, and then the junior year, they went back and shot for 40 days, and then their senior year, they shot another 100 days. Uh, so that's why, like, the first two years of their high school are, like, really skimpy, and then, 
Like everything starts to build up and obviously more, more interesting things start to happen in the junior and senior year. Cause that's when the college uh, starts coming into the equation. And a lot of their personal growth has kind of uh, started to really show fruit. And so it's just, it's, I think it's so interesting the way that this, this documentary grew as a, you know, something that's so unpredictable. Like you don't know how any of this stuff is going to turn out. And yet it, it could be a waste. It turned into something that actually has like real, um, almost like thematic and symbolic significance. Like you almost couldn't write it better the way that, that these two kids that they chose to follow kind of turned out. Yeah, no, it ended up being a really good story. It's, it's, it, very much has a sense of discovery and a sense of serendipity to how it unfolded. Um, and essentially it was just really lucky uh, mm-hmm. that everyone was interested in keeping the story going, that they checked in. It kind of falls into this sub subcategory of uh, long-term documentaries, yeah, uh, which are a thing, uh, which, which kind of like this one, check back, in with uh, the same people over long periods of time. The one that I think about is the, uh, oh, I think it's called something like by tens or something like that. But it it's covers like a group of uh, like a kinder or a, it would be an American fifth grade class, but whatever the British equivalent of that is, cause they're 10 year olds. Um, okay. Like and it does another installment like it's a documentary series and it does another installment every 10 years Um, and it started in like the 60s and went through I think they just released their most recent one like in 2015 2016 something like that um, when all the kids were like really old. Oh interesting. I think I've heard about that, but I haven't seen it. But yeah, it I'm does. Try to see if I can find it. But that's, I mean, that's always one of the the questions with the documentaries, you know, especially covering something this organic is where do you end it? Where do you come to a conclusion? Obviously, they didn't. So they they just followed them through their high school year, and they got like a tiny bit of information after they went to college. But you know, they never actually found out if they got to the MBA or anything like that. Um, ah, it was called. It's called. Sorry, it's called mm-hmm. Seven Up. The first one's called okay. seven up. Then the next one's called seven plus seven. And then it's just their age. So 21, 28, 35, uh, 42, 49, 56. And most recently last year, uh, 63, uh, it followed these people. And you can read about all of their individual lives in this giant Wikipedia article. Um, or just watch the movies. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of a, a thing. They, they kind of signed up for it knowing that that would be the case, but well, I, uh, I imagine their parents would have to have signed them up for it originally. Yeah, imagine that. Your parents sign you up for this thing and you just stuck with it for the rest of it's your just, life. Yeah, kind of like of these you. guys with basketball. Mm-hmm. Now, thankfully, like the, the cameras Pretty left sure. But that's the other thing is like the, the presence of the filmmaker changes the outcome of things. Um, and that's one of the most basic uh, documentary um, understandings is that the presence of a camera changes any event that is happening uh, for good or bad, you know? Um, And there are a lot of, I mean, there's some great Errol Morris documentaries that kind of go into this on a more philosophical level and stuff like that. Um, But uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting is, is especially because of how, um, 
you know, kind of rough their their situations are. Like the filmmakers are trying to show that in this situation, but they're also not totally hands off. So one of the most interesting um, sections of the film is when the mom has been talking about how she's lost several jobs. The dad has lost several jobs. They just can't they just can't hold down a job enough to uh, to keep their bills going. And the the lights actually get shut off in the middle of of an interview and so the documentary crew films them, you know, with like one lamp that I guess they got power from a neighbor or something walking around the house just trying to to get by. And then apparently um, off camera, the the crew gave them enough money to get their lights turned back on. So, you know, they're they still have an active part, but they're trying to show a, a, a very objective part of of these yeah. people's lives. Yeah. Trying to keep the story going, too. Yeah. But these are all like questions you have to ask yourself as a filmmaker is, you know, how hands off on you? How much do you like turn off your I'm I'm a person who cares about these people for a story or are you just going to show whatever happens to them? And then, you know, you scoot and uh, say peace. But I do think it's so interesting because there are a couple moments where the filmmaker will speak from off of camera and uh, like when he tries to get Arthur to read him his paper, he's like, come on, man, just just I just want to know how you write. And it it feels like it gives the subject a very friendly kind of aspect with the filmmakers. And I imagine that it, it must have had to be that way or else they would have, you know, not let them keep coming back into their homes year after year. Uh, but it was just a really interesting moment of like a little bit of a fourth wall break that ended up being like a really sweet moment. Yeah, no, it was a good moment. It showed a lot of character. Um, and it, it was a good way to kind of explore that aspect of the film and kind of acknowledge it as well um, mm-hmm. from the the filmmaker's perspective to be like, yeah, you know, we were involved in this to a certain degree, um, not kind of presenting a slight inaccuracy and in assuming or presenting it as if they weren't, um, which is kind of a nice tacit acknowledgement from the filmmakers. Yeah. All right, uh, shall we move on to Cinna? Yeah, let's do it. Jason, set us up. Cinna from 2010. This documentary covers the career of Ayrton Cinna, from his debut in the Formula One racing scene in 1984 up to his tragic death in a car accident in 1994. Assembling the story primarily from source material surrounding his racing career, Senna traces the challenges of his career and digs to represent the humanity of the person facing them, all with the knowledge that death could always be around the next corner. All right, Jonathan, um, I've seen this one uh, again before as well, Um, and it's uh, actually the one that I ranked the lowest when I was doing ratings on Letterboxd out of these three. What did you think of it? Yeah, I I enjoyed it. I mean, I see I see um where you're coming from because it it is a uh, um it's interesting in that it it's the most fixed of the it's topics. It and and my thing about it is that it's called Cinna um which makes you think it's about this person who is a racing driver, but it's not really about the person. It's just about the racing driver if that makes sense. Like you get in, into like his human humanity a little bit, but they only really touch on it. It is incredibly well put together in terms of technique. 
Like mm-hmm. the editing is incredible. The use of the car noises, the sound editing, uh, the use of blending in live events occasionally to give some, uh, some context such as riots in, uh, in Brazil, um, during his career, occasionally they'll get him to try to comment on it, but not a lot really comes out of those that I think shapes who we think of this guy as a person. He gives a lot of non-answers in those interviews. Um, I think the most humanity I mean, that we their, see their out hands of are him, a little tied in some of those. Yeah. <laughs> elements. Yeah. Yeah. Cause all this is after the fact, right? No one set out yeah. to make a documentary about it. A lot of this is essentially found footage pulled from yeah. an archive. Cause yeah. it was Which, unexpected. Actually there's some amazing, found footage i didn't know that all these race cars had cameras inside the cockpit uh Mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff like it 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 led to some really cool stuff that they were able to do and gather all of 60s 60s um, version of a gopro yeah well it wasn't even 60s was it it was the like the oh sorry yeah 80s 80s yeah yeah Um, i'm sure it was like a vhs i think senna um well spoilers but that's kind of what the whole thing leads up to but i think senna passed away and it's historical in uh, 94 which i also thought was an interesting convergence with uh, hoop dreams it, yeah yeah no it kind of links up it kind of runs up to that period of time um it covers the same period of time just in a different mm-hmm. part of the world uh, i think i thought i All was gonna the say other parts i think of the, the world most, basically uh, yeah it, it's a lot of traveling uh i thought the most interesting part of the film actually uh, was this one, I guess, shot. There's not a lot of coverage of it, but one shot where Cinna is going in somewhere and his team is ex- escorting him away from a group of fans who are being essentially like pushed or pushed away or forced away. Um, and he, he's like, yeah, I feel really bad for those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, they just, they just want to say hi. And now they're being shoved out of here. Like that kind of sucks. That was the most human I saw him in the entire documentary. Um, yeah. There's a lot. Every every other bit of Cinna that we see is him as a race car driver, which is very much because of what we said earlier, Jonathan, because it is from just this collection of interviews, this collection of uh, footage that we would have had of him from the time, which happens to all be professional. Yeah. So it's somebody interviewing say- him because he's a race car driver, somebody watching him race. It's a recording of a meeting where he's arguing with other race car drivers. There's a huge chunk of the movie that's spent on racing politics. Um, yeah, which, which they feels in something about Cena. Yeah, but mostly just kind of feels like they are reaching for stuff to fill time. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think this film does does a lot of of good things, but I will say, and I think that they um, try to fill that gap that you're talking about. Um, like they they don't ignore it. They make an effort. And I think that that's where the interviews with his sister come into play. And they they Those use help. as much of that of that home video footage as they can. But even then, it's only after he's won his first um, tournament and he's just kind of just, you know, living it up. He's got like all these girls. He's he's, uh, you know, just kind of the coolest cat out there. And we don't really see a lot of him. And they they also they try to pull as much like little clips of him not talking about uh, racing and just kind of, you know, uh, whether it's stressing out and like running his hands through his hair or doing whatever. Like they they latch onto those clips that they have and they they stretch them out as long as they can. It, it does make this one kind of one of the more difficult films to kind of pull off in the most compelling way because there is a, 
a real limit to the amount of content that they have. Um, but so along those lines, and it's kind of probably for later in the discussion, but we can get into details in a second. Uh, but what do you, what is really the takeaway of Senna? Cause I think that was one of the things that, that kind of makes a difference when we're talking about this of like, what parts of Senna are we seeing? What is the, what is the, the overall point of making this documentary? I don't really know. Cause I think there's two options and they're not completely like, like they, they go together. Cause to one extent it is a celebration of Senna, but to another extent, the, the last thing that the film shows is that the Senna's death kind of created a more rigid um, safety system for the Formula One race, which has not led to any deaths since then. So I wasn't sure if that was kind of the point is that, you know, That's a at good what one. point does a sport and the politics of that sport, again, to your point, there's a lot of politics in the film that they they really hammer down on. Um, at what point do the politics of a sport become worth the price of a human's life, you know, at that point. Uh, and they try to, you know, they make Senna as sympathetic as they can because, you know, they're, they're using him as that, as that focal point. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I totally see what you're saying with this, with the safety thing, but that again, kind of just feels political. Um, mm-hmm. The, and I didn't most, really see it coming until the very end, so I didn't think yeah, that the whole film yeah. had a real focus on it. So the the most interesting thing to me about this documentary, and I don't know if it was intentional, it maybe could have been more interesting to me personally if they leaned into this a bit more. Um, but a lot of the framing of the story is talking about the greatest racer of all time uh, when you're talking about Cinna. Uh but I feel like one of the reasons why you could consider him that is because he's basically ends up being cut down in his prime. Um, so we're left with this frozen preserved image of him. And mm-hmm. the film is essentially without really leaning into it, exploring this frozen image that we have of him. Now, if they had done a lot more retrospectives from the future with a lot more people who were talking about who Cinna really was, or a lot of fans of the sport talking about who, how, what, how they thought about Cinna, and there were people who never met him, only knew him by reputation, and comparing and contrasting those two to try to get at the root of who this person really was as an individual. That could have made a really interesting story here. But you mm-hmm. kind of just get like a highlights reel of his career. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a really well put together, well done technically and artistically through editing. Um, which which may footage, be. And which putting may together be worth a good something on its own. Document of his career. Yeah, uh, but it kind of lacks much of a story, which it feels like there well, just could have been a story, right? Like, because it's so person focused. It's not event focused like the Olympiad where we just need to see. We need to feel present in the situation. Uh, we're just watching. A, a combination of footage that's already available elsewhere. Edited yeah. together. It's edited together really impressive, impressively, but what but I will say one thing that it does is, um, for one, it brings Formula One and this this sport to probably a wider audience than it had before. You know, people who 
maybe aren't interested in watching the Formula One every year or whatever uh, can find something interesting in the documentary. Uh, so it, it kind of transcends just that sport in itself. Um, but I yeah, I, I do think that they do a really good job of finding as much else as they can. And they do present the sport stuff it, on its own like really well. I do think some of the most like really interesting elements are that they were they're able to find so many of like even these uh kind of ominous foreshadowing interviews where Senna is talking about the danger of the sport or he's talking about what his life is going to look like and all that stuff and kind of having even a basic knowledge that, you know, he's going to die in the sport gives a really interesting lead up to it. And all the that was that was a really interesting moment. They they yeah. did do a good job with that. We're kind of they sourced out all that already found already shot footage of him talking about the aspect of death and that other people died in the sport. Yeah. Um, and it was really interesting to me that only that one other guy, like days before the race, was it that I think it was that last race, um, had died in practice and they had shown uh, several other crashes, but apparently that other guy was the only one who had died within this generation of racers. Uh, and then Senna became the second. So uh, like up to that point, I would have assumed that, you know, deaths are infrequent, but not uncommon. And then I was like, oh, wow, that's that's actually a big deal if if it's that rare. Yeah, yeah, no. And, and especially when it's uh, like the pillar of the sport, too, like it is a resonant moment. Yeah. And that yeah, that whole moment of after that first guy um gets taken off the track and all the other racers are just literally sitting there wondering what are we doing like is this worth it is it really worth it and then Senna goes out and he just like runs the track faster and faster and faster because that's the only way he knows how to let that emotion out which is again which there, is there so are interesting parts, there are parts of it that are really cool and interesting and they focus on them pretty well like the contrast with his other with the other driver Prost which is specifically Prost. there to show the difference between somebody who races for position for points, mm -hmm. um, like they're talking about how Prost will stay in fifth place if that's what he needs to do to get more points. Um, whereas Senna's just out there to win every every but single. The, and the race. other thing it does is it is it drives home the politics, which I felt like was a little um dramatized. Uh like I understand like some of a lot of that stuff was really shady. Um, and there's huge controversy that at least from the way that it's presented seems completely justified, but it also did feel, um, a little tabloidy at parts. Yeah. And again, that's, that's part of the effect of, um, using found footage. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things too, is like you, we have only found footage. We have, uh, some recorded interviews that are kind of narrating over the thing. There's no uh, filmmaker narration. There's only interview narration, but they're never on-camera interviews unless it's, like you're saying, archival footage of the racers at the time giving interviews and, you know, talking about their relationships and what happened. But this film could have been very different if we had sat down with the sister and seen her on camera and, you know, got her side of who Senna was and we sat down with Prost and talked to him through it and, you know, even got like 
pros retrospective uh, thoughts on Senna after the fact and all that kind of thing. So there are a lot of different approaches that you could take to this. Um, and so the choice to strip all that out and keep it just footage of Senna that exists with some footage of, you know, the, um, the various, uh, social aspects that are going on in Brazil and in other parts of the, of the country that are applicable makes it really interesting. And those, these are all decisions that you have to make when you're going into a documentary that change the, the overall form and takeaway of the documentary. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is a good retrospective of how you're going to focus. Like you pick the lens that you look at a documentary through using mm -hmm. your structure, using what you choose to spend time on and in, in telling your story. Um, I don't know. I just feel like there's more potential here. And I'm, I'm yeah, there's like a there's like a layer that that even Tokyo Olympiad as kind of objective documentary as it is to whatever extent feels like it kind of has like a, a grander scope and Hoop Dreams feels like it has this um, this uh, social and philosophical scope, even at an implied level that Senna doesn't really have that extra layer somehow and i'm not saying that like you know there was a much better way to do it but it just feels in comparison lacking yeah yeah especially in comparison to some of the other really cool stories we've seen ah man just leave me a little bummed but i mean still worth watching i mean i learned a lot about f1 racing that i never knew about before oh yeah so that's I mean, a whole thing Apparently. My entry level knowledge was practically zero, so I, I I was learning as I went along, googling pole position cautiously and uh, lots Google, of stuff. yeah. I don't think they ever explain what pole position is in the in the in the movie. They didn't they, explain it. I thought they, they would. They explain what the opposite of pole position is, but they don't tell you what pole mm -hmm. position is. I had yeah. to go look that up, and that Same. was frustrating. Honestly, I I had inferred what it was not through the movie but because i have played mario kart so many times uh, i thought i thought pole <laughs> position was like a literal pole where you saw how what place you were on in the race and you could see it Which all times sense. from the track but sense. it's not it's no. the it's the best position to start in the race which uh, is determined by how well you did in the practices in the qualifiers yeah. yeah yeah which i guess kind of explains why Cinna was upset about it in that one scene. I don't know why he was upset about it in that one scene either. I never knew why they had assigned... Like, I know well, that he didn't thing, want the, the bad spot, but I didn't know why he was assigned to the bad spot. Oh, that was part of the politics. That was because uh, Prost had ends with the the racing officials, and, uh, you know, that's kind of... All that kind of implied political level was that they were... They were setting Senna up for failure, and they tried really hard not to imply that Prost was um, directly, like, crashing into Senna and that kind of thing. But that's that's pretty much what what came out, what it came out as. Yeah, that's kind of what it looked like. I mean, they're showing the footage, too. So, you know, you kind of make okay. your own assumptions at that point. Yeah. Yeah, right. All right. Well, anything else about Senna before we move on into overall notes? Uh, no, I think we should go to overall notes. Okay. So, yeah, I thought, I mean, I love when we get to have documentary episodes because they're not the most common 
thing that we talk about, but they do bring a really interesting element to cinema and to storytelling. Uh, and these three, just even as documentaries, if you take out the, the sports element, um, show three very different ways of approaching documentary, uh, which is one of the things that just fascinates me so much is that the story can come about in so, so many different ways. Uh, sometimes you, you basically know what to expect, but you can always be surprised. And sometimes, uh, you're just along for the ride. Like hoop dreams is just hoop dreams. (laughs) It's fascinating because as you watch it, especially the first time, you're kind of discovering the film just as much as, as the filmmakers are. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, that one's definitely an exploration. Um, yeah, no, it's an interesting take on sports, especially on following on the heels of looking at so many narrative based, uh, yeah. sports, sports movies. How do you think that real life sports stack up against fictional sports, Jonathan? Well, I think they, they Which have, do you prefer, <laughs> Oh gosh, you're just going to go straight for that jugular. Uh, I I think they have very different purposes. And so it's, it's interesting because like in a narrative sports film, the film is being constructed in order to create a feeling or to uh, convey some kind of a message. Like sports films are very rarely just like about the sport, but here it's kind of, um, and even these aren't necessarily just about the sport, but the sport is happening as a real event. So it's not, you know, actors or body doubles doing the sport here. The sport is part of the entertainment value itself and not just kind of like a uh, uh, a theatrical background, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. I would I would say most of us probably. Uh, consume sports more regularly live which is debatably a documentary style i would say it is personally yeah it's it's um, a, it's a form it's just yeah. the thing about live sports is that uh and and documentary is that documentary is crafted and and the order in which you show things and the order in which you reveal information and the way that you that you contrast it you know in kuleshov style changes the audience's perspective. Whereas in live, it's just a matter of get it all on the screen as simply and, you know, as well as we can, uh, as it's happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's limited in its format. Um, but yeah, I do enjoy, I do enjoy the live, uh, the uh, documentary style coverage of the live events, especially when it's done with a professional crew. Cause one of the fun things about watching sports is watching the physical feats. Right. Like mm-hmm. and, and watching something like Tokyo Olympiad, where you see all those feats on display, but in such a beautiful format, it's really satisfying. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do think that one of the things that these documentary versions of the film are able to bring to the table is. Again, not just like an aspect of the sport, but an aspect of just people and the way that people live, you know, on, on various ends of the spectrum, you know, you have, uh, in hoop dreams, you have how these kids who basically only have basketball going for them, how they live and how that affects their opportunities and that kind of thing. And then you have Senna who, you know, it's kind of implied comes from a wealthy family. He's got 
everything that he needs. And so this sport is just what he chooses to do with his time. It's not, um, it, you know, it becomes a passion, but it has less stakes attached to it. The stakes that are in the sport for him are much more on kind of like a personal identity level rather than like this literally physically affects, you know, how much money my, my family has at this moment or whatever, uh, is very different. And so that's one of those things that, you know, the, the fictional versions of the story like are all follow very conventional storytelling techniques. Whereas these are showing real people, uh, in various stages of their life and how sport kind of fits into that piece of the puzzle of a whole human being. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A lot of these actually end up tackling sport as an identity, whether in healthy proportion or in a dominant fashion in some way, shape or form, which is interesting because documentaries are inherently built around exploring stories, typically of a personal nature Mm -hmm. Uh, to combine them with sports ends up inevitably forcing you to explore the stories of the people behind the sport in often unexpected ways. Um, Whereas with a narrative sport film, you typically start with the character issues that get set up in the first act and then move into the sports. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting just just to bring this whole series kind of full circle is to compare some of these films almost directly to some of the uh, narrative films that we covered. So Hoop Dreams, it, it actually kind of toes a line, I think, between, uh, yeah, Remember the Titans and um, honestly, Chariots of Fire. Mm, I see. Because uh, I will say Hoop Dreams is less of like a team sport movie, although basketball is a team sport, but it's not about the team. Uh, it's more about like these two kids as individuals, uh, which I do think is an interesting take, especially given the way that we broke down this series between individual sports and team sports. Oh, you know what? Hoop Dreams also relates to like Rocky, that kind of fighting your way to the top type of thing. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, there's Chariots of Fire has an overlap with the Olympics. Um, I'm trying to think what one of the other movies that we covered. Uh, We have basketball. We have Field of Dreams, which is kind of like living in its own world in fantasy land. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's just a weird uh, Kevin Costner Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. Oh, gosh. What is our other individual sport? But yeah, it's, it's like seeing the same type of sport portrayed in different ways and even just the different angles taken uh, is really interesting because, I mean, these sports films are so broad. They're, they take up such a huge um, uh, the kind of scope of. Oh, yeah, the writer. Um, that actually kind of relates to Senna, I would say. It's it's a um, it's that question of when do you stop? When does your your passion become so uh, dangerous? And actually, the writer toes the line of of documentary in the first place because so much of the the people in that film are actually what was are actually kind of playing themselves just in a more fictionalized narrative um yeah i forgot about that 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 fits really well um because it is that question of when does the sport become worth the risk of your life you know also makes me think of uh of uh, a free solo yeah, that too. On like, oh man, such a psychological level. Um, all right, well, I guess that's sports. That's, that's sports, sports y'all. sports. You came um, here for the last word on sports, and we gave it to you. That's it. That's all there is to be said about sports. 
So that's it. There's no more. You don't I don't want to hear nothing here about last. sports from any of you. No, <laughs> no, more no sports. sports talk. Oh man. All right. So Alex, what in the wide, wide world of sports is going on next time on the podcast? Well, definitely not sports, Jonathan. I can tell not you sports. that. Yeah. So we're, Wait, we're gonna let's double do- check. Uh, no. Okay. No. As far as I know, there's no sports in these movies. Uh, there's arguably some racing. Okay. Okay. That's true. All right. You got me. Do you think they're going to be talking about pole position? Actually, you could talk about pole position in that movie, Jonathan. Oh my gosh, you totally can. You could. So maybe this isn't the last word on sports. We'll have the last word on sports next week, which is appropriate because we're titling it The End of the World. Um, Because 2020 has been terrible. Um, The idea actually came before 2020 was completely terrible. Oh yeah. No, our our old pandemic episode was our our timely one. Uh, This one just like... um, unfortunately is still relevant yeah it's still pretty pretty relevant we're not out of the woods yet i love everyone's been talking about how they're just excited for 2020 to be over with and you know what i'm right there with you but it's not like 2021 is guaranteed better so uh not like january 1st resets anything yeah it's not like oh hey the world's great now how about how about that no more no more pandemic Woo! um but but we're going to be talking about the end of the world. So uh, that will include films such as 28 Days Later from 2002, Children of Men from 2008, and Mad Max Fury Road from 2015, which is the one we were talking about with <laughs> racing. It's racing, yeah. And pole position. I just thought we'd explain what we found funny about that. Because, um, you know, why, why not? And if we remember, we will spell that out next time. Yes. Very, I will really explain all the jokes. I just want everyone to get the jokes because, you know, that makes jokes We need funnier. just like a whole bonus podcast <laughs> that's just like us going through and explaining really uh, either stupid or yeah. like two high level jokes that you, we've you guys said on the podcast. Send us jokes. <laughs> and at the end of every podcast, we will read those jokes. Just explain. And then we will explain why those jokes are funny. <laughs> um. All right, but You're speaking welcome. of speaking of the bonus podcast, uh, we do have a Patreon where, or a pa- yeah, a Patreon where you can become a patron uh, and uh, help support the show. Uh, we have a digital community on Discord where we live stream uh, all of our recordings, and uh, we also have a bonus podcast here where we talk about other types of movies, sometimes really old movies, sometimes uh, really short movies, like the last one that we talked about, which was um, a at this point, pretty classic Australian short film called Spider, uh, which is a roller coaster. And we had a lot of fun talking about it. Um, so if you want to hear more from us on weeks that we're not releasing our main show, head over to the Patreon. Head over to the Patreon. Um, but for now, that's about all the time we have to talk about sports. If you have movie suggestions for us and want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at, at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And I'm at the Blue Jay, 1994. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. Oh, I'm also burning a candle right now called the Inklings, which has which is Are supposed you to... Sp- nah. What's it smell like? Uh, cider, oak, and pipe tobacco. No way. Where did you get that? 
Uh, it's from a studio, a candle studio that I found recently that I actually really like. I've started burning a lot of candles since I've started working from home. Uh-huh. Um, just because, you know, it's nice. Why not? Uh, yeah. But it's called Frostbeard Studio. I actually think you would really like their vibe. Um, it but all of their like they have a candle called the Inkling. So. They have a candle also called the Halfling Hills. Um, I think there's another one called like the Shire or something like that. Uh, they've got a lot of Lord of the Rings. They make all actually. these in house. Yeah, they're they're like it's like four people. It's like a husband and wife team. They're big wow. book nerds. That sounds great. I have another one right here that uh, I ordered in the same package called Reading at the Cafe, which smells like coffee and chocolate pastry. And sometimes I'll just like sniff it whenever I'm hungry. I haven't even yeah. burned it yet, but I'm just like, ah, oh, that smells real good. 